It's Wednesday, April 24th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and uh, I'm all alone in the studio today. But fortunately, on the phone line, all the way from Sydney, Australia, from Motley Fool Inside Value and from Motley Fool, is it Share Advisor in Australia? Hidden Gems. Hidden, Hidden Gems. Gems AU. Hidden Gems AU. Uncle Joe Mager, good to talk to you. What's happening, Chris? It is uh, It is good to hear your voice, and uh, i I got a bunch of things I want to talk to you about, but first and foremost, Wait. how is life in Sydney? Uh, it's great. Uh, the city is beautiful. Uh, the people are great. They're kind of like Californians meet Southerners, which is nice. Uh, the weather is amazing. Food is great. Very clean, pretty. You got beaches. It's, it's nice. It's nice. All right, all right. Uh, now I'm feeling horrible about where I live. So let's move on to the investment. But Alexandria stuff. is nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's today. It was like, it was like 50 degrees and gray. And anyway, um, uh, let's talk first and foremost about the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting that's coming up in early May, and. I mean, that's obviously an organization you follow as closely as any other uh, in the yeah, investing I'm flying, world. I'm flying back for the meeting. All right, then. So, what? I mean, yeah. when you think about going in, a couple of years, I, I, I interviewed Becky Quick. She's going to be on the radio show this week. She's going to be moderating the big Q&A session with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And, uh, you know, one of the things she and I talked about was the Heinz acquisition, Whereas a couple of years ago, the big question going into the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting was about David Sokol, Buffett's longtime lieutenant, resigning suddenly and sort of where where do they go from there? That now seems like it's so far in the past, and the Hines right. acquisition is the one that sort of is is the big sort of looming topic of discussion. But what do you think when you like what as you're preparing your notes? And I know you're going to hopefully get to stand up and ask a question. What's on your mind? Well, it's interesting. The last three years have just been brutal, right? Three years ago, we were still caught in the financial crisis, essentially. We're still roughly just escaping out of it. Two years ago, you had the whole Sokol gate. A year ago, we were talking about Buffett's health. And this is the first meeting in a long time where people are actually showing up and optimistic, uh, which which is nice and exciting, and you can see it in the share price. And the shares are up like thirty percent over the last year, and it's it's a little ironic. It feels a little bit like nineteen ninety nine in the sense of, you know, a year ago people were really down on Buffett. Oh, the old man's lost his touch. This company isn't going anywhere. You should be buying tech, you know. And instead, you've got Apple and Facebook down like thirty percent, and Berkshire's up thirty percent, which just goes to show sometimes tried and true is, is a nice business model, uh, or at least nice to own. Uh, you know, thematically, I think this year, a lot of it is just going to be, at least my question is, how are they going to keep investor expectations up? And that's nothing to do with Warren and Charlie. It's how is the market going to keep responding? The stock's selling at a little above, uh, it's about 1.4 times book value, which is a pretty full valuation. I'd say one and a half times is fair. So at this point, you know, Berkshire's not the the screaming buy that it was a year ago, two years ago. I still think it's a great pickup. I mean, I own shares from one of my biggest positions, uh, but that's going to be a challenge. And, you know, I think the Heinz, uh, Heinz acquisition or investment is certainly a, an interesting departure, but it definitely plays to their strengths. You know, the Berkshire has this massive balance sheet. 
and you've got a CEO who is ready, willing, and capable to put billions to work in, I want to say, a matter of minutes, but makes decisions quickly, and there's not a lot of bureaucracy there. It's one of the very few companies that will do that. So they were kind of a natural partner for Heinz when you think about it, and I think you'll see more people reach out to them, certainly in the next couple of years, uh, private equity guys who may not have the capital to swallow a business whole, but Berkshire does. And if they have a great track record as operators and they've proven themselves being long-term guys, you know, they could probably get funding from Uncle Warren. And it's certainly a good use of cash when they've just got so much sitting around. It just seems to me, though, going back to the Heinz acquisition, that that was a move that obviously people were intrigued for a number of reasons, not the least of which was the the private equity piece of it. But it seemed to me, and I'm curious if you agree with this, that it, that this was an acquisition that immediately felt like people um, now had clues into future acquisitions. Whereas when Berkshire Hathaway bought Burlington Northern, the railroad, my recollection is there weren't a lot of people on the heels of that saying, well, an obvious next acquisition is X, whereas in the wake yeah. of the Heinz acquisition, it just seems like people are looking increasingly at consumer brands, strong leadership at the top, um, ideally uh, some sort of family involvement, um, and and really nice verticals. You know, one example being McCormick Spice. So, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, is am I reading the the, the landscape correctly there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are a couple more things you could read into it. One is that Buffett is increasingly willing to partner up, and he's done some of that in the past few years, like with Wrigley, for example. Um, I think you'll see more of that as time goes by. They've got the balance sheet for it, and he's clearly shown an appetite. I think a lot of the rest of the stuff you mentioned is stuff that we've seen Buffett demonstrate through open market purchases of public companies before, so none of that is too revolutionary, I would say, but it's the uniqueness of partnering, particularly with a private equity group. Uh, and they got, and Berkshire got a very sweet, very sweet deal. Uh, the terms on their preferreds are excellent. The warrants were a nice kicker. And I think you'll, you know, see them keep strong arming deals like this in the future. Last question on Berkshire Hathaway, as you mentioned. Oh, oh sorry. You know, one more thing is just uh, bounced to me, but sure. you know, when you think about next steps, owning Heinz, it's such a wonderful company to bolt on new brands and products. Like it's uh, Heinz itself is its own distribution model, essentially. So if you look at something like this, isn't going to happen, but it, I think it should, but it won't happen. <laughs> you look at Sriracha, you know the sauce um, the, that like the, everyone's crazy about. Yeah, the, the hot sauce. The hot sauce, yeah. Yeah, or Twinkies, right? You've got some orphan brands that Sriracha is not really an orphan. It's doing incredibly well. But just as an example, you've got this family-run business that's growing like crazy, that doesn't have distribution, doesn't have much capital, and the family doesn't want to sell. They want to keep it in the family. <clears throat> you get a 68-year-old running the company. This guy should sell to Berkshire, right? And in doing so, he can keep running the company because that's the Berkshire model. They let founders keep running the company so long as they're doing a great job. They get essentially infinite capital <laughs> if they want to use it. And they could plug into Heinz's distribution network and get back in from Heinz 
marketing. I mean, it'll just be incredible, powerful. And that, you know, really speaks to the value of the platform there that I think Buffett will be able to tap into in the future. And we've seen similar deals like that with Mid-American Energy, for example, which has proven a very good platform for Berkshire to acquire indirectly or through Mid-American all sorts of energy assets around the world. Last question on Berkshire. Uh, As you said, a year ago, Buffett's health was certainly on people's mind, even if people thought at the time, correctly so, hey, he's been diagnosed with prostate cancer, you know, he'll start undergoing treatment in the summer, but the prognosis looks excellent. That has certainly panned out, and that's great. At the same time, you look at the most recent shareholder letter, and one of the things he did was really highlight the great performance, investment performance of Todd Combs. Ted Weschler. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like lo- down the road, whenever Warren Buffett, for whatever reason, hands the reins over, it really seems like uh, Berkshire Hathaway is in excellent investment hands. Yeah, I absolutely think so. These guys had great track records before they came to Berkshire, and they're both beating the market and their internal benchmarks since joining. You know, they already have a lot of authority. They're each handling about $5 billion, I believe. Berkshire has float of coming up on like $76 billion. So that's a meaningful chunk of the business that they're now in control of. So this transition has already started, and I think the way Buffett is handling it is characteristically Buffett-esque, very smart, very long view, very team-oriented. Uh, Todd and Ted, who, I don't know, it's, it's cute to, to say those names like that, Todd and Ted. Uh, Todd and Ted are great as a team in the sense that they could be like Warren and Charlie. And what I love about the structure that Buffett has done here is that instead of pitting these two guys against each other to be the next Warren Buffett, he's actually aligned their personal performance incentives based partially on how the other guy does. So each of them has a vested interest in supporting the other, and I think that is crucial to making sure this doesn't turn into like a GE Jack Welch, you know, replacement kind of situation. And instead, these guys are focused on creating long-term value for Berkshire and improving each other's results by working together and their own skills. So, I, classic Buffett thinking ahead like that and focusing on incentives. And you know, I think those guys are obviously off to a great start. And you know, you can look at the financial statements and kind of whittle whittle down what it is that they are buying instead of Buffett. Because when Buffett buys something with Berkshire money, it's kind of, you know, a dad and his son's going to the store. (laughs) The dad is buying more expensive toys than the kids. You can tell what Buffett's buying. And when you look at the stuff that Todd and Ted are buying, you know, they're definitely Buffett-esque. They're a little more, I would say, uh, tech-friendly, than Buffett is, not necessarily tech guys, but they're a little more open to some risk that Buffett probably wouldn't take. But I think that's fine. And to be honest, I think as we look ahead, that's that's what you need. These guys are going to be capital allocators for a major business for the next couple of decades. Let me ask you a couple of questions about investing in Australia. And I'll start with just sort of looking back at the U.S. And I know you haven't been there all that long, but in the time that you have been in Australia... To what extent, if any, has your investing view of the United States uh, United States changed at all? You know, not a whole lot. Um, it, I am definitely thinking, and again, I've only been here for like seven weeks, 
But it definitely gives you a little more of a perspective on the power of American brands in particular. Now, granted, this is an English-speaking country, so it's easier for uh, social media and media content to kind of dribble over here than it is in a non-English-speaking country. But you see a lot of American brands and stores. Some of them are quite powerful. You know, a Coca-Cola is, Coke's is huge here, right? I mean, Coke's huge essentially everywhere because in, in emerging markets early. Uh, but there are a lot of brands that just aren't here and they don't have that kind of mega timeless appeal that a Coca, <clears throat> excuse me, that a Coca-Cola has. So it's interesting to see which brands kind of make that leap, which ones don't. And I'll tell you, I've also developed a new appreciation for just how successful the U.S. has been at technology, and particularly in the software and the website. Um, you know, the there is not an Australian Google, right? <laughs> the, the Google is the same Google we had back home. <laughs> and there's a reason Google has this tremendous market share. Uh, when I use a lot of tech sites here, um, the experience is, is not anywhere near as good as what I'm used to back home. Um, so sites like What If, it's basically a hotel booking site or in the capacity that we've used. And honestly, I think it's a terrible site, <laughs> but it's you know, one of the better ones here. And it's interesting because a lot of companies haven't made their way into Australia yet. So part of the reason the fool is in Australia, right, is culturally we have a lot in common with the U.S. office, right, and we can extend into here pretty naturally. But for something like Amazon, they have not made a big push into Australia on, on the shipping side they have with Amazon Web Services, uh, but because it's just logistically very difficult and expensive, and this isn't a very big economy. You got 25 million people, and it's tough to validate building, you know, large-scale shipping and distribution here. So there aren't a lot of companies that have, that have made that jump, but some have, and I, I definitely, yeah. I, so I guess I am thinking of things a little differently and thinking about companies that can take advantage of distant opportunities and you know some have some haven't i'm certainly more interested in those that have what about investing in australia for people who are interested what are a couple of companies or industries that uh, are attractive and to what extent if any are there ones that are just immediately ones that people should stay away from well, I'll skip the ones that I'm interested in. Sorry, I know it's usually the, the sugar in the cereal. <laughs> the most of the companies that I'm looking at uh, for hidden gems are tiny, just tiny, tiny companies, like sub $500 million companies. Um, so out of respect to members and moving stocks, I won't say anything there. <laughs> what happened to you? You, you? you leave America. You're this value investor. You're all about the shameless know, book talker. Buffet, <laughs> uh, yeah, the shameless book talker. You, you spend less than two months in Australia, and you're, you're just digging through these $300 million micro caps? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> it, it has a lot to do with price, so not surprising. If you break down the Australian market and quintiles of size, the largest 20% of Australian companies sell at around two times book value. The smallest sell at 1.2. So the smallest group of companies selling at 40% discount, roughly speaking, on a valuation basis for the largest. And like a lot of, I wouldn't, I mean, Australia's not an emerging market, but like many non-US economies, you'll see there's a disproportionate amount of dollars flow into the largest companies. 
because of the names that are household brands, people know and trust, and international investors tend to gravitate towards, and Tim has talked about this on the show, but the largest companies have been an economy. So it's kind of self-perpetuating or like a self-fulfilling prophecy that the big get big and stay big. Um, but, you know, grossly overvalued. So like Commonwealth Bank, for example, which is the monolithic bank here. There are four big banks, but Commonwealth is the biggest. It used to be state-run. Um, you know, it's got great competitive advantages. Um, banks here are not very competitive with one another, which is not good for consumers, as I've learned. Um, it's good for their bottom lines. But what's interesting is they're not even all that profitable. So you look at Commonwealth, and it's doing something like 1% return on assets, which is not very inspiring for a bank, but it's selling at 2.6 times book value. And that, that's pretty high. <laughs> People are placing a very big premium on this bank because they know it, trust it. And there hasn't been a recession here in more than 20 years, which is just mind-boggling to think about. It's the longest streak of any country. And so it's, it's not difficult to see how people are enthused about banks. It's because they haven't experienced a recession in so long. You know, like when we look back at the U.S., all the major banks were selling at similar premiums to book value. <laughs> I mean, Goldman at one point was selling at four times tangible book, which is a stupid, expensive price. And, you know, eventually when the Great Recession came through, that, uh, let's just say, brought those valuations back down to earth. I don't think you're going to see something like that here, but I do think realistically those are prices for big banks and the major companies here are just not sustainable. And if you're buying them at these prices, you're you're going to be disappointed. So that's why we are very excited to be looking at the, the smaller end of the spectrum, not to mention that there's almost no analyst coverage for these companies that we're looking at. So the competition is very small, which is nice. It's nice to know that valuation matters no matter what corner of the globe you go to. Absolutely. Um, let's wrap up on some non-investing stuff. What, what has been the biggest surprise so far of living in Australia? Well, we knew it would be more expensive, but it really is more expensive. <laughs> and we were right. Yeah, we were right. Uh, the Australian dollar is like, four percent stronger than the US dollar. So that was just the starting point. But Sydney is one of the most expensive cities in the world and we certainly knew that, but we're not kidding around, man. It's tough to it's tough to eat here and and not really shell out a lot of cash. So my wife and I are definitely eating at home a little more often and we'll we'll go out for lunch. We'll go to a nice place for lunch instead of going out for a nice dinner. Just trying to get used to that. So trying to here and there, but you know, I'm working from home, so that's saving quite a bit of money too. Like we don't have a car, not dealing with the commute. So yeah, the just the sheer price of everything has been a tough one. Uh virtually nothing is cheaper. Like even Yellowtail is cheaper in America than it is here. I don't understand how that's possible. Um whenever I travel somewhere I try to go out of my way to sample local cuisine, beverages, mm-hmm. etc. When I get to Sydney, give me a culinary tip. Give me a little something I should be sampling when I go. Well, the the Asian food in Sydney is fantastic, which kind of caught me off guard. I guess it shouldn't because we're pretty close to Asia. Uh, but the selection here is just amazing, and we've been spending a lot of time eating over in Chinatown. Uh, my favorite place is called Home, and it's this Thai place. I'd, Amazing. There's always a huge line out the door, but oh, 
That's so good. That's so good. And and the beer here is is pretty good too. Uh, the wine is good if you like big fruity reds. So it's it's a good place if you enjoy food and drink and going off the deep end with them occasionally. Well, I can't let you get away without asking about whiskey. I mean, tell me about oh, yeah. the, tell me about the whiskey <laughs> landscape. Just <laughs> uh, it's it's a tough one, Chris. <laughs> is it barren? Because I may have to cancel my trip. Well, the selection is good, but I'll just put it this way: a fifth of makers costs fifty bucks. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that shouldn't be a surprise that American bourbon is more expensive in Sydney, Australia, than it is in you know America. It is, and nothing is cheaper. Everything is just wicked expensive, and alcohol has a lot more tax on it here, so it's just that much more expensive when you're importing it. So, I mean, that's a Okay, honestly, we don't have a lot of booze in the liquor cabin because of it. I just walk in there, I'm like, uh, I can't do that. <laughs> All the glass of water and tea. <laughs> All right, well, have a safe trip to Omaha. We will definitely connect with you uh, in the wake of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, and, uh, and safe travel, my friend. Thank you very much. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. You know, buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Story. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We are off tomorrow because of Fool of Palooza, our annual meeting, but we will be back on Monday. Do you think the listeners could tell this entire time I was riding on the back of a kangaroo? No, I think you kept that pretty well hidden. Okay. Good, because the kangaroo is starving. <laughs> is this is your personal kangaroo, or is it like a like a like one of those bike-sharing programs where you just rent it by the hour? Former boxer, I adopted it. It's part of a kangaroo boxing nice. adoption club. It's like racehorses and greyhounds in America. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs>